you're listening to the podcast series with her in pain and i am your host arushi welcome to the next episode of our series and today we have a very special guest dr alison mcgregor and uh, to tell you a little bit about her she's an associate professor of emergency medicine at the warren alpert medical school at brown university she's also the co-founder and director for the division of sex and gender in emergency medicine at brown university's department of emergency medicine her ted talk why medicine often has dangerous side effects for women currently has over 1.6 million views and recently she released her book sex matters how male centric medicine endangers women's health and what we can do about it in may 2020 i really couldn't have thought of anybody better to join us today and talk to us about how women have been underrepresented in medical studies over the years so thank you so much for joining us doctor Thank you so much for having me. I think forums like this are so important to really uncover a lot of bias that's been part of our system of medicine and health. And so, yes, I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today. So, let's start with how you began to explore the issue of sex and gender differences in emergency medicine and then what led you to speak up about sex and gender bias in medicine through your uh, TED talk and your book. Uh yes sure so I I'm an emergency physician as you mentioned and so that was something that I always really it was always my definition of becoming a doctor was to see people at um in crisis to be able to diagnose conditions and to really try to make a difference. And so after going through all of the training, I graduated finally medical school residency and I start to develop my practice as a faculty member and I wanted to do some research. And I've always been really interested in these issues. So from, you know, a, a nod to the feminist movement that really sort of brought to light the inequalities our our social care system. and i thought well let me do my part and uh look to see if i can improve health of women and when i started to explore that and look for projects and mentorship i realized that everyone thought i meant reproductive issues um and i realized that pretty much when you think about health of women it's been reduced to just merely those issues and uh that prompted me to really start to uncover and discover and to start my own research uh division and to really work at uncovering why this happened and what consequence it has been for women everywhere thank you doctor that's actually a very nice story and background So before we kind of properly get into sex and gender bias in medicine could you tell us just how different men and women are biologically Absolutely that is really the crux of the issue that we're discovering now so I'm sure many people who are listening to this can recall and I can recall in my science classes that we're taught that uh when a sperm and egg get together that you are either assigned a uh, XX if you're going to be a female or XY if you're going to be a male and then those chromosomes will then determine whether you have ovaries or testes and then those organs will then regulate hormones like estrogen and testosterone that will then provide a secondary sex characteristics so hair voice changes breast development and then that was it it's packaged away right so it did its job and then that's it 
And what we're discovering now is that those sex chromosomes are not just in the ovaries and testes, they're in every cell in our bodies. So they are part of our brain health, they are part of our heart, and they um, determine how we develop heart disease and how we metabolize medications and pharmaceuticals because those are affecting our enzymes in our liver. And you know, it's really endless, they're in our skin cells. And so that they still have a role in how we develop disease and that includes estrogen and testosterone and the role that hormones play. Hormones affect also metabolism. It affects our susceptibility to viruses and bacterial infections. It affects our you know, distribution of medications. So we've really just sort of uh, thought that men and women were only different based on sexual characteristics and reproductive health and that there are pretty much similar outside of that. So this has really just sort of blown the top of that sort of confined view of research and health. So doctor, I was going through your book and uh, you had mentioned uh, that a lot of times when we talk about gender bias in medicine, we're actually dealing with many layers. There are multiple stages deciding what to study, arranging for funding, conducting animal trials, human trials, and then educating the doctors. So could you take us through uh, these various stages and uh, also through how bias creeps in at every stage? Uh, absolutely, yeah. That is really the crux because what's happened is this bias is threaded throughout our framework of understanding of um, medicine and health. And it really dates back to when we started conducting research and developing what does the scientific method mean? Uh, how, how do we say that we have discovered something? And way back um, when we were starting to really gain this momentum, it was also the point in time where human subject research was uh, unregulated. And so it was being performed on imprisoned individuals. Like during World War II, we were studying humans in concentration camps. We were in the United States, we have issues of enslaved populations that were used for studies like the syphilis uh, test case study. And so what happened was in the United States, this was around 1973, the National Research Act came to light and it really created necessary regulations on human subject protections in research. So it established a review board that um, has to approve you're doing research on humans. Um, and it's to really make sure that there's informed consent, adequate informed consent. There is no doubt that this was very important for research and for human protection. But what also happened about that time was we were experiencing things like thalidomide, which was a drug given to women of reproductive age without understanding that it has detrimental effects to the fetus. And so that sort of got swept into this act. It sort of was said, well, okay, if we want to have human subject protections, we should also make sure that women of protected age in general are protected, that we don't research them just in case something happens. And the result of that was that women were just excluded entirely from medical research. It was thought that it was uh, simpler because you wouldn't have to control for the stage of the menstrual cycle. So if you include women into a study, it was this thought that women are complicated, that we'd have to increase the number of women enrolled in the study in order to power the study to determine if sex differences exist. 
uh, and that can be expensive. So, so let's just really make sure that we simplify our understanding to make sure that two plus two equals four. So that was where we really sort of targeted men. And we assume that the results studied in men could apply to women, uh, that we must be alike enough outside of our reproductive milieu. So, so that's what happened, that research really started to our major cardiovascular trials, our major stroke trials, our understanding of cancer, all came from studying the male model, even male animals and male cells. That was unfortunate because we thought we were protecting women, but we actually developed all of these gaps in knowledge of how women present with health and disease. So if this is our literature that we have created, that's the same evidence in the literature that's used to educate health professionals. It's used to educate doctors. It's used to educate nurses and pharmacists and, and you name it, anyone in the health field. And so that gives you a sort of foundation of how men present with the disease, how men develop disease, uh, how to treat disease that's male-centric. And then what I was seeing in the emergency department was I was seeing so many women come in that didn't fit that pattern. In order to be a very skilled emergency medicine physician, you get taught pattern recognition. So you know, oh, this is what a heart attack looks like. And we were taught that the Levine sign, which is a male, if you Google images, it's usually a white male clutching his chest like, oh, this is what a heart attack looks like. But that doesn't look that way for many women. And so that means we're not recognizing a heart attack in women. We're not understanding that women have different ways of having a heart attack, like down to the, the, the heart muscle cells. Um, and most of our diagnostic testing and medications have been designed to help detect and help treat the way that men develop uh, heart disease. And so, so now that we're realizing that these differences are there, hopefully we can start to embrace these differences and help things like, why is it that women have higher mortality rates when having a heart attack than men? Why is it that women are less likely to be treated with evidence-based medicine than men? And a lot of it has to do with how ingrained our system of research and then to medical education and then to clinical practice, that all of those three rungs have been really designed and developed and flourished based on our understanding of uh, male patterns of disease. So doctor, I just have two follow-up questions to that. So you mentioned that most of the medical literature that is used to educate doctors and other healthcare professionals are based on male models. So when I consider the present day, to what extent do you believe uh, the medical curriculums today are also male-centric? And then how aware do you believe doctors are made of uh, this androcentricism? Great question. And it's, it's happening. It's coming. I do believe it is inevitable that this change will make it around that, you know, all of those cogs of that wheel. What I'm experiencing as I advocate for this through all of those sectors is that research speaks, data speaks. So one of the first things we try to do is make sure that researchers understand that not only do they need to study and include women, but they need to analyze the studies to determine if there are differences 
between them. So it's not just about adding women in a study, it's about analyzing it to determine if there are differences. We've made great inroads in in the fact that our funding agencies, like the National Institutes of Health, have made it a requirement that you must include sex as a biological variable in your design. And that has increased our uh, exponentially the evidence that we are creating and the evidence that we're discovering of how men and women are different in clinical significant ways. Now, a lot of the challenge is on making sure that that gets integrated into health education. For, for the most part, you know, it's, I've been invited to give a talk to the medical students or the faculty on the importance of sex and gender. But that's really inadequate because what we really want is every instructor to, um, you know, if they are given the pharmacology lecture, we want them to make sure that they include how men and women, uh, you know, metabolize pharmaceuticals differently. When they're given the stroke lecture, what are the differences in, in presentation and outcomes between men and women? So it's really more of trying to create a cultural shift that is integrated throughout. That's that's challenging. That's quite difficult as well. There's a couple things that make me feel very positive about it. One is that what we have done in the U.S. is we've created a summit, and we have included in, um, international representatives as well. We've had three summits called the Sex and Gender Health Education Summit. And we are inviting all of the curricular deans, the educational leaders, to come and, and discuss best practices for integrating this new evidence into the curriculum. Also, I think that the students are way ahead of the game to many of the older practicing physicians like me or their teachers uh, because they already realize the importance of this. They realize the importance of ensuring that gender identity and biological sex and all these social cultural variables are included. So I think the fact that we're working to figure out how to best reorganize and integrate the curriculum and then to have the push from the students themselves that are saying, where is this material? And so I think we're at the cusp of, of really making a difference, but it's going to take some time. Um, and I think that's why there's also the lag in clinical practice, right? So all of these new graduates are entering into clinical practice uh, without this understanding. And so then it's difficult to try to relearn and reteach them. And so um, so there's there's lots of opportunities, but it's it's not something that can change overnight. But I do feel as though we're, it's inevitable we're along the right track. So, Doctor, you had mentioned to the question that how, you know, gender bias creeps into different, different stages of the medical system. Uh, you briefly mentioned animal trials and how male animals were used. So, if we look at the recency of that, uh, when it comes to clinical trials, are female cells, female animals and women being underrepresented even today as we speak? Or uh, are we simply dealing with consequences of biases that took place in the past? The answer is both. We are making inroads into making sure that uh, female animals and women are enrolled into clinical studies. But there is this new understanding that can't be impressed enough, which is that it's not just about sprinkling some women into the study. So if you look at a scientific literature and you look at a study and you think, oh, this is terrific, and you look at the demographics, 
we never used to even say the sex or the gender of the subjects. It would just say a hundred subjects were enrolled. Um, and so now we're like, that's clearly not good enough. So when you actually uncovered that, you saw like, okay, maybe 85% were males or all were males. And so now that we're uncovering it, they're like, okay, well, let's make sure that we add, even if at the best, 50% men and 50% women, when you combine them, that is not revealing whether there's a sex difference there. And so I think that's the new change because we've, we've tried to say that we need to include women into our medical research, but it's not just about that because some parameters have shown that if you give this medication to women, it has this positive effect. If you gave the same medication to men, it has this negative effect. And so if you combine the two, you will erase the effect. You will not reveal that effect. So I think that is something that, uh, needs to be expressed right now because when you do find that there is a difference between men and women, uh, then we have to look at why. Why does that difference exist? Is it because of genetics? Is it because of the hormone levels? Is it because, or the interaction of the hormones? Is it because of their gender identity and impacting their role in society that has effects on their health? And these things, you know, this is where the future is going. So I think that it's challenging to all of a sudden change direction because of the historic momentum that we've had by using men. So if you're a researcher and you look back at the research to then determine your hypothesis for the next piece of, of, of the puzzle, um, and you look back and everything has been based on male patterns and, and studying males, um, when all of a sudden you decide to include females, it may not it may not fit that path. So there's the historic momentum of just continuing to use males. And so we have to break that. We have to, we have to allow for some complexity. We have to evolve and we our understanding of uh, scientific methods. And I think we're doing that. We just have to put our light on to, okay, this is where we need to, to focus. We, you know, as scientists, you're constantly looking for where's the edge of the front, where's the frontier of medicine. And if now that we realize that women were excluded and then we're like, okay, we need to bring women in. Now we realize we can't just bring them in. We need to analyze them. Um, you know, and this sort of goes on and on. And I think it's just, you know, evolving our understanding of research methods that are reproducible and uh, generalizable. So, Dr. Trying to look at the roots of uh, these issues, you had uh, talked about why women were excluded or underrepresented in medical studies, but there are, I mean, a couple of other forms of gender biases uh, as well. For example, excluding uh, female cells and female animals or uh, other things like not dismissing women's pains. So what do you think are the fundamental reasons behind these other forms of uh, biases at various stages of, of the medicine? Um, so when you look at who are the people that are creating the tools, right? So we've had mostly male-dominated STEM fields. So science and technology, engineering, uh, mathematics. And so if we've had mostly men in those positions, they have then used their own experiences and their own 
evolution of what their thought is to design those experiments. And, and I think like men have been mostly physicians and definitely leaders of uh, science and health have been mostly men and in tech. And so what I think is really important is we're now discovering that what does diversity bring in? And so when you have women as the physicians, as the scientists, they tend to think of things in, from their point of view as well. This has been demonstrated in both scientific literature and in clinical care and in uh, tool generation. So I'm happy to give you a couple examples. One of the studies has shown that women, patients come in for a heart attack. And when the gender of the physician is a female, that the women have better outcomes. They were less likely to die. I mean, mortality is a major outcome, right? It's not, it's not a little thing. But when they, um, then, then if they had a male physician, but they also discovered that when the male physician has a female colleague, they do better than if they're alone. And so the when you diversify the workforce, then everybody sort of, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. And so I think that that's, that's really important that we've shown that in clinical care. In scientific literature, they've reviewed, um, this one uh, person reviewed team, thousands of uh, scientific papers. And when the first and last author, which are the two main authors of a scientific paper, when they were women, they were more likely to evaluate sex and gender specific analysis in the study. They were more likely to enroll women and then to look at those differences. So that's another example of getting women in these particular fields. Um, there's another one that I I think it's really interesting and it has to do with like femtech and there's this uh, study that looked at smartphones and they compared an Android, a uh, Siri, uh, Microsoft and um, you know uh, for various others and they asked it questions and they asked it questions like about physical health. They said, I have, feel like I'm having a heart attack. And the answer that the smartphone would say is, you should call this person, this is an emergency line of this person number. It was really good at, you know, I have a, I have a headache. Okay, you should um, do this, do that. But when they, they asked questions that were relatively female, like, and th these are the ones, I'm depressed, I was just raped. I was just beat by my husband. These were some of the questions that they asked. These algorithms had nothing to say. They did not, they were like, I do not understand. And so what that tells me is that who's designing our technology, our health technology, our science technology. And if it's primarily men, then it's going to be based on their experiences. And so I really, you know, these, if you look at, at anything that's related to this, you can, you can see where it, it's very important to make sure women are at the seat, they're at the table, that they are designing these interventions, that, they're, that they have input. So as we work parallel to, to those specific, you know, junctures for, for women's equality, I think that we'll see it come back around. Absolutely. I think that was a fantastic point. So moving into the impacts of these biases, what are the major consequences of uh, sex and gender bias in medicine, which affect all women? 
Um, well, if you just look at women in general, and you just look at our understanding of medicine and then look at what happens to women in the current system, what we see is that women are less likely to have a diagnosis because of all the biases that we talked about. Their, their condition is not going to be recognized. And so what happens is when it's not recognized, so if a woman comes in and she has these very vague conditions or symptoms and it's maybe up here, then women get sent to a cardiologist and the cardiologist says, um, well, I'm using these tools that are designed to test how men have heart disease and they're not saying that you have heart disease. So it's not your heart. Go see the gastroenterologist. Uh, maybe it's your stomach, it's your gastric reflux. And they go to a gastroenterologist and the gastroenterologist says, I don't think it's your heart, but here's some medication. And why don't you go see a pulmonologist? Maybe it's your lungs. And the pulmonologist says, maybe you should see an orthopedic doctor because it's probably your bones over here. And on and on and on and on. So women are just collecting very negative feelings. They feel sort of this emotional fatigue of constantly being told it's not this, so maybe it's psychological. They start collecting all these doctors and specialists and being prescribed medication that wasn't even designed for women, uh, women's metabolism. They get sent for you know CAT scans, MRIs, all these tests and not really ever getting at an answer. And so there's this feeling that they are left out of our medical care system, just in general. And I think that that's really important to understand that that's the viewpoint that many women are coming at. And so starting from there and really sort of, you know, peeling away the layers of the onion to say, what is really going on here and how can I help is something that I try to do and you know many many physicians do as well to try to improve the healthcare of women and 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 their relationship to healthcare their trust in healthcare yeah i mean yeah so um, where do women with pregnancies lie uh, in 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 this sort of uh, when we're talking about the impact of these biases pregnant women are they fell on a crack in, in the floor. They're, they're really a black box, unfortunately, because of not having the fundamental knowledge of studying pregnant animals and really understanding how our medications and how diseases that occur in women and then now considered during pregnancy, we've had this real fear of studying pregnant women. So if we were to go to the basic science and really understand, we could have informed decision-making. We could have clinical trials that could enroll women safely who are pregnant and who have medical conditions. For some reason, we have had women, uh, so one of the things I say is um, pregnant women get sick and sick women get pregnant. And we've, we've separated out a woman's entire sort of physical ailments or their underlying health, and that just gets erased while they're pregnant. And then they're just supposed to uh, do what they can to safely deliver this birth. But, you know, it's because we're not studying. What, does, what is it like when you don't take your autoimmune uh, medications, where you don't take your antidepressants, your anti-anxiety medications? We haven't studied enough of, of the general overwhelming health of women during the, their pregnancy life. The other thing we're starting to discover is what does pregnancy uncover for future health? 
For instance, we now know that if a woman who's pregnant has certain conditions like uh, high blood pressure during pregnancy or preeclampsia or these peripregnancy conditions that are very serious, that leads to advanced cardiovascular disease later in life. And so really sort of sort of studies women having enough information to safely look at these particular issues and then also understanding what happens during pregnancy uh, that may affect their health postmenopausal or later on. And so I think we need to, to start to pay attention to that and to bring that along with sort of this revolution of wanting greater understanding of our bodies. From our discussion today, I think it's clear that the problem of uh, sex and gender bias uh, in medicine is not merely about having encountered a sexist doctor on a one-off instance. It's about a larger systemic problem. So do you think it would be fair to conclude that women are genuinely more prone to suffering from conditions that doctors don't have answers for, despite the best of their intentions? That's a great question. It's there are biased individuals in every institution, right? Every every career, every job, going to encounter people that you're better off not, you know, encountering, and you can just move on from them. And so, I think if you find that one of your physicians doesn't suit your needs, then that's a major red flag to, to move on. But you're right, this is a systemic system, and so in general, most physicians go through all of the hard work to learn. Uh, so that because they're altruistic, because they actually enjoy the science and enjoy helping people. So that is really, you know, that's the bond, that's the crux of our medical system. There are a few bad apples that you just throw away. So that being said, then you need to, if you feel as though your physician doesn't have an understanding of your uh, the complexities of you because you're a woman and is having difficulty with that, I think feeling empowered enough to have that discussion with your doctor. Say, hey, I just listened to this podcast and I realized that men and women might metabolize drugs differently. This prescription that you gave me, was this studied in women? Is this safe for me? Should I take a different dose? What are the side effects that are specific to me? And you create this conversation. And I think most doctors would be very uh, willing to have that conversation, even if they don't know the answer, because then what do we do? We go to the literature and we look it up and we try to figure out if we if that answer exists yet in our understanding at, at this time. So I think you should feel very empowered to um, to learn along with your physician and to and to have these open conversations that will improve your relationship and your response to their therapy. So to understand that in greater detail, what are some of the women's conditions or generally conditions which are pre which predominantly affects women? What are some such conditions that have been understudied? That's a pretty big list because even if it's something that is, happens um, both men or women, it's it, it seems to occur. It can occur differently in women than in men. But if we look at simple things like not simple things, very complicated things that haven't been studied, like uh, these syndromes, pain syndromes, um, fibromyalgia, complex reflex sympathetic dystrophy, dys dysautonomia, this autoimmune inflammation, that stuff really has, has a long way to go. 
what we've done is we've just collected it and gave it a name and it's just a syndrome. So irritable bowel syndrome. Well, that doesn't tell me, okay, my bowel is irritated. What? Cause it's, it's upset at me for, for saying something. It makes no sense. Right? So looking at what is actually occurring, I think is missing in a lot of these female dominated diseases, interstitial cystitis, uh, endometriosis, right? So if you look at things like that, like take, go back to fibromyalgia for a minute. So fibromyalgia is a diagnosis based on how many points of pain that you have. And the doctor says, oh, if you have this many points and you're, you know, uh, then here's your diagnosis. Um, without looking at what's going on at the nerve level, What's going on in the, in the autonomic level? How are your hormones affecting that? And that is not a diagnosis because then we're just giving women anti-anxiety and antidepressants to treat that, which may be effective, but it's not enough. Uh, and so I think that, you know, as we start to really discover some of these differences, making sure that we understand how women are different. Another one is simply pain. So just generalized pain. It's, it's, um, this is something that is quite fascinating. I'm not sure if we spoke about this before when we've spoken, but there's a new research out there that shows that when you have a pain signal that sends to the brain, um, so if you were to put your hand, a uh, finger in a fire and it says, ow, that signal gets sent from your finger down the nerve to your spinal cord, up to your brain. And your brain says, ow, you should take that out. What we've just recently discovered, uh, and not, I say we, the Royal we, but um, McGill University, and there's some amazing scientists who, who are doing this, actually found out that that initial signal has a different path between men and women. So if they blocked that path that they thought was the way that pain was processed, when they blocked that particular cell that they thought like was the main cell, that in men it blocked the pain, but in women it didn't. So then they looked at why and they're realizing it's a different cell entirely that is initiating that signal. So if you just look at that one gap, that one misstep, and then think about all of the pain medications that we use to provide relief, maybe they're not even effective in women. And so, you know, that one little misstep, you know, has tremendous consequences for women as they are trying to get relief, be given medications, get some understanding, and then oftentimes might not be believed that they say, well, it still hurts. Well, it can't hurt. I gave you morphine and I gave him morphine and he feels better. So, so that's just sort of shows you how much work we need to do. Yeah, absolutely. So coming to your uh, personal experience as an emergency doctor, could you share a couple of instances from your own experiences in the ER of how women were either dismissed or their conditions were not understood in their own right? You have uh, talked about heart attack a little bit, but sort of to kind of talk about something else maybe. Yeah, sure, sure. I like to listen to the my patients. And oftentimes, once you, uh, women, they come prepared to give you a scenario, right? They're just like, okay, they've been working on their thought process and they give it to you. And a lot of times I like to just sort of say, well, how did you come up with that? Or, you know, what would make this a, a great encounter for you? 
you know, I may not, you've seen all, I've had all these tests, you've seen all the specials. I may not be able to give you a diagnosis today, but, but maybe I can relieve your pain. Is it pain that you want relieved? So I think being really open, I try to express what is your motive for this visit? That way I can really tune in on that. And when I do that, I discover uh, a lot about these women and their, the, path that they've had to undergo before they reach me. And they're usually quite exasperated by then. No one wants to go into an emergency department, wait, you know, unknown amount of time and see someone that's, you know, that you don't, don't have a relationship with. So I find that very important. I think I wrote about this one in the book where this woman came in and she, I might forget some of the particulars, but it's still a good one. She came in and she um, was very just exasperated about her pelvic pain and all that she has had to undergo. And so she um, underwent a uh, surgery to have her uterus removed. It may have been for endometriosis. I can't remember the details, but she still had pain after that. And she went back to that surgeon and went back to several doctors. And that particular surgeon told her that she's having phantom uterine pain. Now there's no such thing. There's absolutely no such thing. We use phantom limb pain for people who have had to have an amputee of their arm or their leg, and sometimes they can still feel that. And that's because the pathway, you know, the brain thinks that, you know, was so used to developing with that particular limb uh, that oftentimes there's, there's a process to retrain the brain that that limb is not there and it's okay. There's never been anything documented about that happening with the uterus. Internal organs don't have the same nerve uh, connectivity. It's a separate type of nerve altogether. And so that's why we, don't, we can't feel a lot. It's very vague in our stomach. And that's purposeful. And you, you don't want to be like, oh, my pancreas just, uh, just did that. Or, right? So these things are evolutionary for a reason. And so when she was told that, she's like, she's like, okay, she left and she got worse and worse and worse. She finally went to a different doctor who looked at, uh, reopened her up and did surgery again and found that she had an abscess on all this infection from the previous surgery. So it's that sense of women don't feel like they're necessarily listened to as much. And, uh, and many doctors just feel like, that they can't help and that maybe it's emotional and psychological. And so those, you know, those examples are all over, really. They just present in different ways um, on small scales and on large scales like that. So it's, it's pretty much, it's, it's wherever you look, really. That's where bias tends to be. Absolutely. So coming to today's major healthcare concern, the COVID-19 outbreak, do you believe we need to study it for sex and gender differences or worse do you believe there are already sex and gender biases that have crept into its study one of the things that we learned with covid-19 is that one of the first data points that we were getting is that more men uh, were dying than women more men were being hospitalized more men were being uh, admitted to icu level care so what i thought that that was Good at demonstrating is the fact that looking at why, again, why does that sex difference exist from the point of view of the male really showcases that this sex and gender is not just a woman's health problem. 
we have some catching up to do. That's why women have been really the main proponents of this, because we've realized that by not embracing that, you know, up until this point that we had major gaps in our understanding. So, but what that did was say, look, this is really important to discover for men too. Um, and so that, that was interesting. When you look at some of the studies and the studies in general, we have learned that uh, part of the reason why men are doing worse is because they only have one X chromosome. Um, and there are many immune-related genes on the X chromosome, which is partly why women have more autoimmune conditions, because they have all of these you know, genetic um, immune inflammatory markers. But for this particular uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, it, it seems like it was, it's beneficial. Um, we also know that the hormone is different. Testosterone actually promotes the SARS-CoV-2 virus from entering into the cell. Um, so, so look, these are great sex-based um, uh, differences that we can um, have a greater understanding of science. And then you look at the gender-based differences. And one of the things that we've discovered is that men are less likely to wash their hands when anytime. Uh, it's been shown in bathrooms, public bathrooms. It's been shown after patient care and ICUs. Men are less likely to wash their hands. They're less likely to use soap. They're less likely to wear masks because a lot of the public health didn't take into account that maybe men wouldn't find it masculine enough or, or whatever. There's lots of theories. But so by looking at the current condition and you can really, um, with that lens, then we can really gain a better understanding. But there's been several reviews now of looking at clinical trials that have been submitted into clinicaltrials.gov or um, literature reviews that have looked at uh, all the pharmaceuticals that have been tested to see if they're effective in COVID-19. And there is a dearth of information on sex and gender there. So I think people were so rushed and um, didn't, did not understand the need to make sure that we look at this in real time. That seemed uh, unfortunate to me. I feel as though you know, it's, it should have been embraced. But I think that the people who were on those front lines of research did, you know, weren't aware of, of the importance of it. So there, there were things that we've discovered and then we're realizing that we need to make this knowledge base more available. Absolutely. So obviously, uh, doctor, the issue of sex and gender bias is quite alarming and also a little complicated to fully solve. So what is currently being done to overcome this issue? Um, so a few things that we are, that we can see, especially, uh, actually throughout the world now is, so our funding agency um, requires sex as a biological variable. Our Food and Drug Administration, which approves drugs, are at least becoming transparent. So you can um, look online. They have a system called Drug Trial Snapshots where you can look up a new drug that's been approved and you can see the demographics of who was enrolled in the study based on sex, age, and race. And you can have those conversations with your doctor about um, how to translate that, interpret it for you. We are working at um, the educational level with our sex and gender health education summits to make sure that the educators are including this into their curriculum and lectures. Uh, and, you know, in any place, like one of the reasons why I wrote the book, Sex Matters, was to make sure that even if you're not in those spheres, you have the, you have some 
influence? Where do you have influence in your life? Are you on a public health committee? Are you volunteering at uh, some sort of, uh, you know, grammar school education uh, process? Wherever you are, wherever your influence is, um, making sure that you bring up the fact that, hey, is this, is there bias here? Should we look at, um, um, you know, men and women or boys and girls differently? So I think, you know, that is really important, even in that relationship between you and your doctor, that is influence. Right. The students, you know, at, at uh, my medical school are very, very aware. And so they feel very empowered to bring up and ask questions of me. And I think that that's that needs to translate everywhere. So wherever you encounter, um, you know, either something from your doctor or you are enrolled in a study or you are part of you're leading a group, making sure that 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 is included. I think that's going to really help help the awareness problem because without awareness there really is no you know it all of this biases can remain unconscious and invisible so doctor you had touched upon it a while back but to sort of look at it in greater detail what can women do in the short run to overcome the issue of gender bias in medicine and also what can they do in the long run to overcome the androcentrism uh, present in medicine so I think in the short term, um, one of the things I really try to uh, press upon is that we really need to take control of your medical record. That is key. So becoming an active uh, participant in your medical care will only help you. Uh, so making sure that you have all of your doctor's any tests that you've had, any medications that you've had, what are the side effects of those? What are the doses changing? Uh, when have you gone to the emergency department? And making sure that you have all of that cataloged in a way that you find comprehensive. Taking a picture of it, doing it on your smartphone, uh, that really helps, especially in an emergency, you have all of these things with you, and um, I love it when a patient gives me, you know, a, a folder with their stuff, or their, um, they took a picture of their medication bottles. Because what I don't want to do is begin to perpetuate this thing. Oh, I don't have access to anything. Let's do another CAT scan, and that, you know, every test and every medication has risks uh, associated with it. So, really making sure that you are the primary understander, work with your primary care doctor of your uh, health, and if there is something. Thing on there like anxiety. I mean, if you feel as though you do not have a, you don't meet criteria for this or depression, or if you have any sort of questions about this, you can talk to your doctor. You can talk to the hospital about, about your medical record and you can petition to have certain things changed if you feel as though it creates bias against you. I also say to make sure that you uh, either be an advocate or bring an advocate. So if you are not feeling well and you're at the doctor's office, it's very hard to advocate for yourself. And so it's really great to have someone there with you, a friend, a relative that can say, she doesn't normally act like this. Um, this is not, she, I, she does have anxiety, but she, she's never complained like this. This pain is, I've known her uh, all my life and I can't believe she's complaining of this pain. And be that for each other because that other lens can really help the picture for the physician to see, okay, you know, what is this condition for this patient right now? And then some of the other things I say, oh yeah, I mentioned the motives. So making sure that you state your motives. Do you just want to know for work? 
great. If that's the case, ask for it. And then maybe I won't, I won't order that really expensive test because I'm, I think you might have something serious or, you know, and just be very cognizant to ask as many questions uh, of your uh, physician as you can. I think that is where to begin the now. And I would just go back to what I answered about the future, which is finding out where you have a sphere of influence. So, you know, if you're having a book club, choose a book that talks about gender bias in an area that you have interest in. You know, if you're going into medicine and science, making sure that uh, these processes are part of whatever you have an interest and access to. And what can doctors do to overcome the bias implicit in their uh, training? And also, are there any best practices they can follow to ensure that they do not discriminate against their uh, female patients? Um, Great question. And so when I do talk to health professionals, the first thing I do is talk about just a timeout. And so we, there are so many instances in um, healthcare where a timeout has been where it's conducted before surgery, making sure you have the right side of the body. You know, everyone does a timeout. Is this the right patient? Is this the right body part? You know, when the stakes are high, there's timeouts. And so for me, what I say is when a patient comes into the emergency department and you, you know, pull that curtain back and there's the patient sitting there, the first thing you do is identify what is the sex of the patient and what is their current gender identity? Because that's going to change what I look up and how I handle that individual. So then I can go to the PubMed search tools and I can look at online research and I can um, and I can say, based on this person's biological sex, I should do order this or that. And based on this person's gender, I can expect that they may want to have family and friends there to help treatment decisions. Or they probably, if they're a woman, they probably delayed seeking care by at least two or three hours. And I can add that into my concept. And then, you know, that's throughout the whole thing. So it's throughout uh, seeing the patient, uh, what tests, what, what, what is your concern? What's the differential? So what's the list of things that this person is complaining of could be? And now I'm going to really look at that based on their biological sex and their gender. What test should I order? What result reference range should I look at? Um, for instance, uh, men and women have different concentrations of red blood cells. Uh, so if I'm checking a red blood cell count, I'm going to need to look at the column that says what their biological sex is to see if that's within that, that normal range. Maybe I should change the dose of the medication. Maybe I should change their follow-up. Uh, maybe their discharge instruction should be specific for their sex. So that way, if you have a male person with a heart attack and a female person with a heart attack or chest pain, then I want to give them sex-specific discharge instructions because they're going to have different things they need to look out for. So it's through, it's like sort of the time out, how does this affect the next step? Um, I think that will help us start to incorporate this new knowledge that's growing exponentially in real time. Thank you so much for joining us, Doctor, and speaking to us in uh, this much length on the subject and uh, educating us. It was truly, truly insightful. Thank you. Thank you for putting your time and effort into creating this podcast. I just think that this is this is you creating your influence, as we were talking about. And I just think it's it's wonderful, and it does take a lot of effort. And I think many, many women and men can benefit from this. So bravo to you and your team. Thank you. Thank you so much, doctor. 
Signing off, this is Arushi and I'm with her in pain. And this is Dr. Allison McGregor and I'm with her in pain.